Open your copy of God's Word, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, or excuse me, chapter 9. We've been going through this book verse by verse. This morning we're to chapter 9, verses 11 to 18. Hear now God's Word. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors. Neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Also this I came to see is wisdom under the sun. And it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, Wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler and fools. Among fools. Verse 18. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This is a passage that's teaching us, again, practical stuff, practical wisdom on how to live. And I think it's a very important passage for us to, to see God providing us great wisdom and great solutions. I came across a study of a scientist named Dr. Buck, Butley, Buckley, and he spent 11 years... Um, by putting rats in an experiment chamber, uh, inducing that chamber or filling that uh, uh, area with the sights and sounds uh, of a city to determine the effects of our city upon the rats. So the rats had the lights of a city, had the noise, the buzzers of a city, even had the vibration of a car or a train. All the kind of stuff we're used to, just walking down the streets of a town. And he noticed after one week, even though he studied 11 years on this, he noticed after one week, the blood pressure of the rats went up. And they became irritable. And they became dangerous. And not only did it happen to the rats, it happened to him and his assistant. Their blood pressure went up. And they were more irritable. And they were more dangerous. And as I read that, I said, you know, we, we rarely evaluate our lives and think about the stuff that's causing us stress and making us irritable and dangerous and increasing our blood pressure. How can we escape? How can we get out of that rat race that we're literally in? Day after day after day. Wouldn't it be great if God provided some solutions to that? And I think we find solutions out here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Now I know it's been a couple weeks since we looked at chapter 9 verses 1 through 10. So let me just give you a quick review. In chapter uh, 9, 1 through 10, the first half of this chapter we saw that right thinking produces right behavior. 
We were told there, first of all, you need to be thinking about God's sovereignty. Everything's in the hand of God. You need to be thinking about sin. We have a sin nature. And you need to be thinking about how that impacts us. God's sovereign. We're sinful. And then you need to be thinking you're going to die and face God. And there will be rewards. So those are thoughts that should be kind of in a routine. If you think the right thoughts, it's going to produce the right behavior. If you think about sovereignty and sin, death and rewards, you will start to live holy instead of sinful. You will start choosing happiness since God's in charge and is giving you this life. You will become honeymoonish. Remember that word, right? And you will also become hard-working. In other words, the first half of the chapter is input will, for the, a large degree, predict output. You have the right thinking in your brain. It will produce certain behavior in you. So you think, okay, got it. I will do this. My life will be fairly predictable. And then you get to chapter, uh, verse 11. He said, now, don't think you've got it down yet because there's several things that mess up the predictability of God. God's not always predictable. And I call number one nullifying effects. There's things that happen that doesn't seem to fit the pattern and it changes everything. And the other thing that changes everything is neglected wisdom. Wisdom's available, but often neglected. So as you think that you've got this very predictable life, let's enter into certain things that will change it. And we all know it when we see it. First of all is nullifying effects. And that's what he mentions here in verses 11 and 12. He says, I saw that it didn't happen the way you know, it's supposed to be predicted. The race, the fastest one's supposed to win, right? The warriors you know, that are stronger are supposed to win the battle. People who are the wisest, discerning, they're supposed to get the most bread and wealth. He said, why is it not as predictable as the first half of the chapter said it was going to be predictable? And he ends that verse, verse 11, he says, because time and chance overtake all of us. And in verse 12, he gives a couple illustrations of that, like a fish swimming so all of a sudden he's ensnared and somebody's got him for supper. Or a bird flying and all of a sudden he's ensnared and the same is happening. He says that kind of thing happens in our lives as well. Imagine, you know, through the COVID season, you've been really smart and strategic. You've been doing research and you think it's time for a job move. And you have sent out the best resume and you've nailed the interviews, and you're not just getting a new job, you're going way up the chain. I mean, this is beautiful how it's all working out. Your dream job is in front of you, and you're on your way, first day, on your way to your dream job, great promotion, life is now going to be great. What you don't know on the way to your dream job is there's a trucker coming the other way, and he stayed up all night. And he falls asleep at the wheel. And he crosses the median and runs right into your vehicle. 
You wake up in the hospital to be told you're going to be in the hospital for the next six months. And after that, lots of therapy to overcome this accident that was no way your fault. And while you're recovering in the hospital and while you're recovering after, somebody else takes your dream job because they couldn't wait. And because you were between jobs, you let your insurance lapse and you got a lot of bills and now you're broke. I'd call that a nullifying effect, wouldn't you? That's what happens to us. Many times we're overtaken by something that we did not have control over. And it radically changes our lives forever. What do you do when life's not predictable? When you're as free as a bird, you think everything's going your way, and it's because you've been thinking the right thoughts and doing the right things, and now your ship's finally coming in, and then your ship sinks. You're like a fish swimming that gets destroyed, or a bird flying that gets shot down. That takes us. He uses the phrase, for time and chance overtake them all. Great phrase. I think we understand Ecclesiastes is just so pragmatic and practical. He uses words we understand. Said, man, you ran into a bunch of bad luck. We get that. But I thought God was sovereign and I thought luck and chance. You don't say that in a biblical church, right? We don't believe in chance. Let me work it out for you. First of all, realize the context. The context is the context of God's sovereignty. Look back at verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. I have taken all this into my heart and explained it that the righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are what? In the hand of God. God's in charge. God is sovereign. This is in a sovereign context that he's saying chance overtakes us all, or we all experience some bad chance, bad luck. He's just using the, the terms the way we practically use it. He's not saying God's not in charge. He's not saying chance the way we sometimes use it a different way when we think in philosophy that chance is some uh, impersonal force of nature. He's not, he's not defining chance that way. He's defining chance as just an unforeseen and uncontrollable occurrence of life. You didn't see it coming. You couldn't control it coming. It hit you. It wasn't predictable. That's what he means. You couldn't see it. You didn't know it. It happened. That's the way he's describing this event, this event that nullified your work and your time. And he even calls it evil in the sense that, man, that's, that's just bad. How do you live when life gets that bad? When everything is a wreck? How do you keep holding on to God's sovereignty when you're not successful? And that's the point, isn't it? 
Because everything's in God's hands, this is precisely when we should be holding on to God because all of this is in God's hand as well. We just didn't see it coming. We thought at some point, the more you trust and the more you do God's will, the more you think, hey, I'm doing this. Then God sends you a wreck. It's like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. I guess I'm not in charge after all. And it brings you back to sovereignty and away from your own measure of success that your stuff is what's really making these things happen. Why, do God, why does God allow strat- tragedies? Isn't it his, his strategy, strategy at times to, to send us difficult things just so we get looking up again and start looking to him? Why did he send us coronavirus? Is it not to bring us back to God? Do we think that way? Do we think it's just all about us? God many times sends wrecks into this world so that we will see it's not about us and it's not about this life. It's about a lot more to come. Well, not only do we forget that wrecks occur to all of us, and no matter how rich, how wise, how privileged, whatever you are, you can't keep the unforeseen and the uncontrollable from happening to you. Your trust must be in the one who holds it all to take care of you through those times as well as the better times. Second, he says, neglected wisdom, uh, verses 13 through 15. He says, I came to see... I came to see his wisdom under the sun, uh, and it impressed me. He gives this illustration, long illustration. He says this city was basically surrounded and put to siege, and they were all going to be starved out and die. And yet there was one poor man in that city that knew the way out, knew the escape. Very wise man. He came up with some scheme. doesn't tell us what it is. It just says that there was wisdom found in a poor man unlikely person to find it they probably went to everybody else first and at some point this poor man's made known and they say wow that's actually what we need to do and so they follow the poor man's advice and they're all they all escape and they're delivered and yet nobody remembers the poor man. they neglect the poor man I mean, you would expect if the whole city got delivered, at least somebody would say, can we at least put up a plaque? Can we give him a certificate? Can, can we take him out of poverty? He just delivered all of us. But they neglect any of that. They forget. They just go back to their life, thankful that they have been delivered. And they were delivered at the hands of a poor, wise man, tossed, now tossed aside. How often do we neglect wisdom? Wisdom comes to us sometimes from small, insignificant sources, and yet we neglect it and quickly get back to thinking it's about us and doing life our way. Wisdom is invaluable. It impresses me. But it's quickly tossed aside. Who saved us from coronavirus? Did CDC save us? No. Did masks save us? No. Did social distancing save us? No. 
Did scientists save us? No. Did presidents save us? No. God saved us. And we know that. God is our deliverer. God is our strength. God is our healer. And yet often he's tossed aside. And we give the praise and the glory somewhere else. When God is the one who sustains and delivers. We forget, don't we? It's interesting that the fourth commandment, we, we break it at the first word. Remember. That's the word we miss. Remember the Sabbath day. Why? Because our tendency is to toss it aside, to say it's, it's optional, I could do, I'm doing good, I, I, I could do my own thing. No, remember, there's a day in the week that's sacred, that's holy, that's been set aside. It comes around every seventh day, and you're to remember it and to keep it sacred and to keep it holy. When you take the Lord's Supper, twice God says, when you take the bread, remember Christ's body given for you. When you take the wine, remember Christ's blood shed for you. Because our tendency is to forget. To toss he who is our wisdom aside. But I'm not sure I need him right now. Or I need to remember these things. And God says, yeah, you do. Remember God. Remember your Sabbath day. Your time with God. Remember his body. His blood. How would your race be described if you neglected wisdom? If you neglect hearing from God, if you neglect His day, if you neglect His body, His life, His blood, how would your race be described if you neglect His sovereignty, His effects upon us? Well, we need some help, right? We need some direction out of these wrecks of life and this lack of wisdom. So the end of the chapter, he, he gives us some directions. And it was interesting as I was studying it to see the word better used three times. Did you catch that? He's, he's showing us a better way. Verse 16 says, Wisdom's better than strength. Strength is what, you see, we call impressive. It's, it's the effective is better than the impressive. Verse 17 um, Quietness is better than loudness. Of course, he's talked, thinking about that illustration, the quiet little fool who gives you a wise word, or the ranting, raving politician or preacher who gets louder and louder and louder. In that sense, quiet is better than loud. And then verse 18, again, wisdom is better than weapons. The, the contrast really is between much and one. One sinner destroys much good. So much good's better than one sin. Well, let's think about that advice. So I, I want you to choose something better than a way you might normally go. You, you might go towards strength. You might go towards 
impressiveness, verse 16. He says there's something better than impressiveness and strength and power. It's effectiveness through, through wisdom. Uh, the poor man may be wiser than the strong, rich, wealthy doctor or politician or ball player or whatever. Uh, think about what you need, and it might be that it's more effective to listen to the poor wise man than those who are in power and impressed. Um, he's drawing a contrast. I try to remind myself of this every time I play golf, but I'm not, I'm not very good at reminding myself. This is a slogan every golfer knows, and the slogan is, you drive for show, you putt for dough. Now, even if you don't play golf, you understand, I think, the slogan. Every golfer has to drive the same number of times every time you play a round of golf. And on the drive, that's the first shot you make, the first hit. You want to hit it hard. You want to hit it fast. You want to hit it far. If you succeed in driving it hard and fast and long, people go, whoa, they're impressed. Strength. Every golfer has the same number of drives. Guess who wins? The one with the fewest number of putts. Putts is what gets you millions of dollars on the golf tour. Every golf tournament is won on the putting green. And the one with the fewest number of putts wins. It's, more, it's, it's quiet. You know, instead of everybody going, Yay, what a drive! They're going, Good putt. It's not as impressive. But that's what's effective. That's what enables you to win. Now think about how that applies to our lives. A lot of times we would rather pick the impressive and we spend our time and money on the impressive when we need a little quiet wisdom that nobody claps for, nobody pays us for, and yet it makes our lives so much more effective. Will you seek godly counsel for everything you do? Will you open the Bible and read? Nobody maybe sees it. Doesn't seem impressive. And yet it's extremely effective in living your life, letting God in speaking to you every day, giving you directions. Uh, what do you want? You want to be impressive or effective? I want to be effective. Uh, some people say, David, sometimes I think you take the Bible too far. We just need to do our own thing. We just need to go our own path. No, no, no. God's my God. He's my Lord. He's my master. He's the one in charge. I want to do it his way. And to do it his way, I need to know his word. I need to obey his word. I need to follow his word. Nobody sees me read through the Bible every year. Nobody sees me sit down and just open and read. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 to the end.
God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God. And righteousness. And sanctification. And redemption. So that just as it is written. Let him who boasts. Boast in the Lord. We like to pick the impressive people. The strong. The mighty. God says, I don't choose typically the strong or the mighty. I pick small, poor people lots of times. It's not that I'm opposed to the strong and mighty, but I just don't do things the way of the world. I choose people to give them wisdom. I give them Christ, and Christ is their wisdom. And Christ is their strength their redemption, their sanctification. Christ is all in all to them. And so they don't, they're not people who end up boasting about themselves. My life is so successful and wonderful because I did it right. You don't hear genuine believers say it that way. My life is wonderful because Christ did it right. Because Christ embraced me. Because Christ owned me. Christ came into me. Christ spoke to me. Christ was the poor man on the cross dying for the sins of the world. And he came to me and showed me how to live. We can neglect the impressive because we've got something much more effective. And that's Christ. And there are plenty of people that just are not impressed. That's okay. Because Christ chooses us and all things are in his hands. Well, not only consider that he's more effective than impressive to most folks, but consider the quiet voice of God over the loud voice of man that I think he illustrates in verse uh, 17, the words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. The words of the wise heard in quietness. Do you listen to those words? Again, I'll give you a few examples. Proverbs chapter 12. I shared some of this a few weeks ago. Just verses I always use in counseling. Uh, Proverbs 12, verse 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. A wise man is he who listens to counsel. People who don't listen to counsel, according to this verse, are what? They're foolish. They're foolish. They're not wise. And Proverbs goes on many places to say, A multitude of counselors, in a multitude, there's wisdom to be had. And you should be seeking it. You should be seeking counsel. As a church, we're commanded to counsel one another, encourage one another, and build one another up constantly. 
We come here to be counseled. And we're counseled from a particular source, not from experience, but a particular source. Look at 1 Timothy for that source. 1 Timothy. Or is it second? It's second. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And here's the source. All, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that, purpose clause, so that, for this purpose, so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. You, you can become adequate. You can be, the old King James used to say, you can be thoroughly furnished for everything you do by getting in to all of Scripture. All of Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. It's ex- 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 exhaled by God to us to equip us. We need the wisdom of God to live the life God wants us to live. A few people listen. Few people are directed by the Word of God. We hear large, loud voices on television, on internet, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, and we're scrolling for those more than we're scrolling for these. Are we not? We're listening to the loud and we're missing the quiet, still voice of God when His promise is that every word He speaks is without error, without flaw. It's pure. It's counsel that will not harm us, but equip us adequately for every good deed that God wants us to do. It reminded me of the illustration of, of Elijah. Uh, I'll just look it up real quick. It, it's, it's just an illustration. It's 1 Kings 19, and that's when Elijah was running. He needed a, a word from God, and God comes to him. 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, and uh, I think that's right. First Kings, yeah, nineteen, verse eleven. God comes to him in in a big way, and as I thought, you know, I like the bigness of God here. First, first uh, Kings nineteen, verse eleven says. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great strong wind was rending the mountains. You ever been in a strong wind? It looked like it was going to break a mountain. That's what he's at. Uh, and it's and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. In the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. You ever been in an earthquake? Man, uh, unbelievable. I, I've been in about three and one, I couldn't see anything but concrete all around me. And it was seven on the Richter scale. I mean, pictures were falling, chandeliers were swinging, 
And I just felt like God had the earth in his hand and it just bouncing in like a ball. I said, how does God do this? I said, this street's about to open up and I'll be swallowed. And it was impressive. A little fearful. And then after the earthquake of fire, you ever had a fire coming at you and you're looking for some place to run? The Lord was not in the fire. And then after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. And it's like, ah, what a letdown. Wouldn't you have rather God show up in an earthquake? Or God to show up in the fire? Or God to show up in the wind? And instead, God shows up in a gentle breeze. Like a whisper. Elijah, it's me. Let's talk. It's like, really? I wanted something more impressive than that. And many times I think we're looking for the lightning bolt. And we're missing the wisdom God has for us. I mean, could, is it possible that God could speak to you through a quiet preacher? Who just reads his word? Or do you need somebody screaming loud, you know? And some people are looking always for the loud and missing the quiet voice of God. Most of the time, people ask me when I'm not preaching and I'm sitting where you are, you know, how is it? Wasn't a very good sermon? Was a good sermon? What do you think? My answer all the time is, the problem is not with the preacher. The problem is with my heart. Am I listening for the voice of God? Because if I'm looking for, hungering for, and listening for the voice of God, it doesn't matter how frail the preacher. God's already proven in His Word. He can use a donkey to speak. It's really about our ears, our hearts. Are we listening? Or have we got it in some parameters that we don't take it in unless we get it our way? Does it have to come through Twitter before you listen? Does it have to be on Instagram? Does it have to be on Facebook? Does it have to be on TV? Does it have to be on Internet for it to be true? You know all that stuff's not true, right? But this is, do we run here for this quiet voice from God to give us the wisdom we need for the life we live? Deuteronomy 13, 3 and 4. Commentary, perhaps, on the coronavirus. Deuteronomy Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice. Serve Him. Cling to Him. 
There's lots of false prophets. There's lots of false teachers. And they come across much more impressive than me. Much more powerful than me. And they have a lot of people's ear. And they have their own blog. And they have their Twitter account. And they have their Facebook. And they have their Instagram. And they have their masses. And we tune in. And God says, that's not my voice. You're listening to a lot of people. Are you listening to my voices? I gave you these loud voices. To test you. I'm testing to see, do you love me, God says, with all your heart? Do you love me so much that when everything else is on, you're in this rat race and there's stress and there's noise and everybody's tweeting you and Facebooking you and Instagramming you and saying, hey, watch this. Hey, listen to this. Are you opening up my word for direction? Are you just listening to those voices? Because those voices are there for me to determine who you follow. Do you follow CDC or do you follow me? Do you follow the politicians or do you follow me? Do you follow the impressive rich or do you follow me? It grieves me as your pastor so many times to get the email that says, we figured it out. I just heard so and so. And I'm thinking, oh, why could you have not said, David, turn to this book in the Bible, this chapter, this verse, God spoke to me. Do you not see God wants to speak to us? And God's voice is in this book. He still speaks to us today through his word. It grieves me to see so little biblical world view on how to live life. And yet he's constantly giving us that view Every page of the Bible, Ecclesiastes is a book, big book for that. You know, verse 17 says, basically, the quiet voice of God's better than the loud voice of man. Perhaps this is where we got the idea that devotions to God begins with a quiet time. A time where you sit before God and pray and ask for his still, small voice to come to you through the word. That's still the need of man and God's testing to see who are his. And you know who his are? John 10, it was quoted, or same passage was quoted earlier in the service. His sheep hear his voice. He knows who are his. Because when he speaks, we're out there listening to his voice rather than to the voices in our world that are loud and screaming at us all the time. 
And then the last kind of direction he gives us in verse 18 of Ecclesiastes 9 is that wisdom is better than the weapons of war. One, one sinner destroys much good. The contrast there between the one and the much, the one and the many, um, it's really an illustration that one morsel of wisdom can change the outcome of a war, even if you've got many weapons, many planes, many missiles, whatever. You've got one morsel of wisdom, or you've got, and he switches the illustration, what if you have a lot of good, a lot of holy, but just one sin? Again, you see the contrast. And we need the wisdom of God, and we need the holiness of God. It's better than the sin of man. And, and we've seen that. Take a football game. The NFL draft was this week, so a lot of you have been watching that. And how many times have you watched a football game and it was just one fumble changed the outcome? One penalty changed all the good work. We see how one act changes everything. And how is it not... And it's the same way in our life. We can live a long time doing a lot of good and then have an affair. One sin. Changes everything, doesn't it? Holy is more important. Character is more important than all that other stuff we've been doing. We see how important it is to realize our nature is sinful and we are in need of cleansing every day through Christ. God illustrates it in Romans 5. The sin of one man, Adam and Eve, infected the whole world. Hebrews 12, one root of bitterness defiles many. 1 Corinthians 5, one sin in a church. It's like leaven in a lump. Leaven's the whole bread. One lack of discretion. One lack of commitment to God's word, His standard, holiness, Changes everything. It's just a verse that's screaming, don't play with sin. Don't play with sin. Came out in a survey I read this week. that 35% of evangelicals thought it was all right to have casual sex. Really? Would that be true here? We can, we can sin a little bit. It won't matter. A little bit of sin? Nah. I got a lot of good. See, contrary to the scriptures, we've got to get back to God's standard, to the word of God, and follow God his way. Or we're going to be rats in a wreck rather than redeemed and enjoying his blessings and his goodness. Let me pray for us. Father, it's easy for us to open the word and become exposed quickly. We're a mess. We're sinners. We are in need of a Savior. We're in need of Jesus. We're in need of being redeemed and cleansed. It's so easy for us to go astray. We're like sheep. We go astray every day. Call us back, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us 
of trying to make life so predictable that we don't even need to depend upon you. Help us to see that's not going to work. That we are yours. You've drawn us to yourself. We must still depend upon you daily. For those here, Lord, that are not yours, they haven't seen the beauty of being chosen by you. We ask for such grace. Save your people, Lord. Even this morning, give them a hunger and thirst for you and a hunger and thirst to do life your way according to your word with your wisdom. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.